Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. That was a much more generous introduction than the one I once received, which ended, and now for the latest dope from Washington, here's E.J. Dion. So... Thank you uh, uh, for that. Um, you know, it's also um, very kind of you to come out to hear any journalist these days, given where we uh, stand. One, one of the good things about the online um, experience and the, and the rise of the new technology, although it has some downsides, is the ability of readers to talk back all the time uh, to those of us who write columns. And human nature being what it is, people... Uh, seem to write you uh, a little more when they disagree than when they agree. Um, one of my favorite negative emails began, uh, Dear Mr. Dion, that was already ahead of the lot, uh, actually having that very polite opening, and then it went on, Are you as dumb in person? And if you get nothing else out of this talk, you'll be able to answer that uh, question for yourself. Um, and, you know, people, they throw out around a lot of things. The, the oddest thing I've been called recently, um, a, I discovered that you also have little comments under your column. Um, and uh, one of my critics regularly refers to me as the comb-over midget. Um, now, that didn't really bother me. I, I was bothered on behalf of midgets who are a real group of people. But I have always been very transparent on the hair issue. And I don't know <laughs> where um, he got that one. But I do think commentators need a thicker skin than we have. First of all, we're very privileged to be able to do what we do. Uh, secondly, uh, imagine what our politicians go through, probably especially uh, in this election year, and the things they say about each other. One of my favorites, uh, Governor Edward Edwards uh, of Louisiana, he later ended up in the slammer, but he once said of one of his opponents, my opponent is so dumb that it takes him two hours to watch 60 minutes. Um, um, Churchill was more elegant on these things. He once said of someone he didn't like, he has none of the virtues, he has none of the virtues I admire and none of the vices I appreciate. Um, and he also uh, said of an opponent that he was simply a sheep in sheep's clothing. Um, I do want to thank Wade and also uh, Leonard Wallach and Kelly Coleman, whom you heard just had her baby. I was coming into town and was trying to reach folks, and I had her cell number, and I called her, and she was very helpful and, and just really warm and very engaged, um, and I actually got to tell her my fantasy, which is if there were reincarnation, I would uh, have uh, into another life on this earth. Uh, I would like to be reincarnated as a student, an undergraduate at UCSB. I'd be very fortunate. We were talking about that, and she talked about how she much, much she missed it. And I said, um, well, I hope you'll be there tonight. And she said, oh, I won't be able to come. And then there's a pause. Um, I had a baby four hours ago. So here was this person carrying out this wonderful conversation, and she was there holding her newborn. Um, I am also really happy to be here uh, because of my feeling uh, for the Caps uh, family. Uh, I got connected to the Caps uh, family through um, Laura Caps. I was a journalist, and she was working uh, in the Clinton White House. Um, and um, I was in the White House one day talking to Laura, and it was when her dad was between his races for Congress. He was preparing for his next uh, run uh, for Congress. 
And the way Laura talked about him, the, the, the love, the respect, the affection, the sense of friendship, um, just stayed with me and stayed with me. And when her dad died, um, I called her and I said, Laura, I want you to know that you gave me what may be my most uh, important life's ambition, uh, which is I want my own kids to feel about me the way you felt about Walter Capps, about your dad. Um, and I think that says a lot about her, a lot about him, a lot about uh, Lois Capps. And so this is a lovely family that I have a great affection for. Um, and now giving the Martin Marty lecture, it's not fair to have to give the Martin Marty lecture. Senator Paul Simon called Martin Marty the Thomas Jefferson of American theology. Uh, giving the Martin Marty lecture about religion is like giving the Michael Jordan lecture on basketball or the Babe Ruth uh, lecture on baseball. Um, it is not an easy uh, task. There are a couple of uh, Martin Marty quotations to share with you. This is very much in the spirit of Walter Capps. Uh, bringing people to openly confront each other across faiths is good for society. Well, we all need to confront each other to learn limits, to learn empathy. You can't have justice without arguments. I love that as somebody who spends a lot of time arguing. Then he adds, uh, the issue is to make it civil. Uh, and he also said, and this has some bearing on what I want to talk about tonight, hope does not let itself be utterly restrained by realistic assessments. Uh, think about that one. Um, and so in the spirit of Martin Marty, um, if you'd ever heard him give a talk, I propose to begin with a bit of analysis, then offer a small dose of politics, and then I will do a little bit of preaching uh, at the end. Um, in the preaching part, I do not, will not, will never claim to speak for God or any particular faith, um, but I am confident um, that God will try to protect me because, as a friend of mine once said, a God looks out for fools and Red Sox fans, and I qualify on uh, both counts. Um, thank you. There are always Red Sox fans somewhere. Um, I want to start by talking about why I think the culture wars are abating. Uh, despite all this anger we see from the Tea Parties, and we'll get to that. Um, so if you want to think about culture war election, if you're looking for a presidential election that really revolved around religion and moral values, uh, you wouldn't start with 2004, 2000, or 1996, or any recent election. You'd go all the way back to 1928. Now, there was a culture war election, and there was a religious war election. Um, at that moment of great prosperity, the two big issues were whether you, the United States should continue its experiment with the prohibition of alcohol and whether it should elect Al Smith, New York's uh, Democratic governor, as our first Roman Catholic president. Uh, in the end, it wasn't even close. The dries who favored the ban on booze overwhelmed the wets who wanted to be rid of it, and the Catholic Smith was clobbered by Republican Herbert Hoover, who carried several southern predominantly Protestant states that had been voting Democratic before then since the aftermath of the Civil War. Um, and Hoover, during that campaign, thought that the great prosperity of his period would continue. We shall soon, with the help of God, he said, be in sight of the day when poverty will be banished from this nation. That was in 1928. Um, a little more than a year after Hoover's buoyant prediction came October 29, 1929. 
um, after the great stock market crash, the question of whether Americans could legally consume alcohol seemed rather less pressing. Uh, the controversies over Al Smith's Catholicism abated. By 1936, the year of FDR's landslide re-election, the culture war was forgotten, uh, replaced by a nonviolent class war against those whom FDR called economic royalists. Um, the lessons of that earlier age, I think, are eerily relevant to uh, our current moment um, in politics. Uh, when major crises intrude, culture wars can fade awfully quickly. Uh, they did so in 1936, and I think they did so again in 2008. Um, I think we are at the beginning of a new era in which large secular problems related to economics, to war and peace, to our standing in the world, will displace culture and religion as the electorate's central concern. Uh, divisions on values will not disappear. Arguments about questions related to morality will certainly not disappear. But I think they will be far less important to voters and to political uh, campaigns. Um, in 2004, uh, we were arguing over whether George Bush was reelected primarily because of his strong support from voters who told the exit pollsters that moral values had guided uh, their decisions. I come back to that in a little bit, but do you remember those poll questions? They asked, you know, what made you decide your vote? Was it the economics? Was it the war in Iraq? Uh, was it education? Was it moral values? Uh, I always like to bring that up because I like to ask um, members of an audience, have, uh, any of, has any one of you ever cast your vote on the basis of immoral values? Um, because I have been waiting now for several years for someone to say yes, and that is the person I want to go out with for a drink after uh, all of this uh, is uh, over. Um, we spent a lot of time parsing the political preferences of those who attended religious services frequently, those who never go, um, and we did find the former group rather staunchly Republican, the second rather strongly Democratic. It was 1928 all over again, culture and religion rule. Um, now, in truth, if you go back to that Bush victory, it rested on uh, far more than enthusiasm from religious voters. Uh, but what was most important, I think, is that 2004, like 1928, is destined to be the last in a long line of contests in which religion and culture proved central to the outcome. Um, you could see that shift uh, during the uh, 2008 primaries. Uh, John McCain, the Republican nominee, um, won despite the opposition from, uh, opposition from the party's cultural uh, and re uh, religious conservatives. On the Democratic side, uh, both Barack Obama and um, Hillary Clinton stressed, um, uh, stressed economics, health care, uh, and the war. Um, at the same time, um, they uh, were determined to end the culture wars in another way um, by arguing that there was a need to broker peace uh, between Democrats and believers. Um, in a very important speech in 2006, Barack Obama said, if we don't reach out to evangelical Christians and other Americans and tell them what we stand for, uh, then the Jerry Falwells and Pat Robertsons and Alan Keyses will continue to hold sway. Uh, more fundamentally, he said, the discomfort of some progressives with any hint of religion has often prevented us from addressing issues in moral terms. 
Um, and Hillary Clinton in those primaries spoke in much uh, the same way. Um, in uh, their efforts to push cultural issues aside, and in his continuing effort to do this as, uh, as uh, President Barack Obama was very much uh, resemble what Franklin Roosevelt did after those culture wars of 1928. Roosevelt knew that maintaining a democratic majority required overcoming the cultural divisions of the 1920s. And just as large events, uh, the depression, the threats from Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan helped him in his effort, so are the large questions about our economic dislocation or the aftermath of the Vietnam, of the Iraq war. I have Walter Capps on my mind in his famous course on Vietnam. The aftermath of the Iraq war, the continuing struggle in Afghanistan uh, will continue to, to uh, push aside these cultural uh, battles. Now, it's a human habit to assume that whatever define the era you just lived through will necessarily define everything that comes after. And so the rise of the religious right in the late 1970s and early 1980s came as a surprise to a lot of people because most Americans had come to assume that the long, relatively secular period that FDR's election inaugurated uh, was going to be the way things were forever. We had forgotten how often religion has proven decisive in our country in the creation of new electoral alignments. American history offers many examples of this. Uh, in his uh, magisterial history of the United States before the Civil War, what hath God wrought? Uh, the historian Daniel Walker Howe shows that the religious divisions and the rise of evangelical Protestantism were defining characteristics of the party system built by the Whigs and the Jacksonian um, Democrats. The rise of evangelicalism was also important to the rise of the anti-slavery movement. But our republic has also had moments um, in which uh, religion was less important to public life, and it is easy to be blinded when we find ourselves at a turning point. The last long secular era endured from 1932 to 1980. Presidents throughout that period continued to use religious language in their speeches, declared their devotion to God, and invoked faith on behalf of the great causes they pursued. Religion didn't just disappear. We are a very uh, religious nation. Uh, FDR, for example, referred to Nazism as the new German pagan religion, and he insisted in 1942 that the world is too small to provide adequate living room for both Hitler and God. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower assailed godless communism that strikes at the jugular vein of freedom. And John Kennedy proclaimed in his 1961 inaugural address, here on earth, God's work must truly be our own. But think of that Kennedy line. It really signaled the distance between politics and specifically religious question. His emphasis was on the work to be done here on earth. In his famous speech before the uh, Houston, uh, Greater Houston Ministerial Association that was designed to reassure Protestants that his Catholicism would play no substantive role in his presidency, Kennedy said, I believe in a president whose views on religion are his own private affair. Religion was private, not public or political. But the secular period that Kennedy spoke for ended with Ronald Reagan's election, with the rise of the moral majority, the emergence later of the Christian coalition. If my theory is right, we will see that era of religious polarization as having lasted from 1980 to 2008. 
the era we are now in that is beginning now uh, will likely be more religious than the more the post-FDR uh, secular period. It's hard to imagine Obama or um, any other Democrat giving a speech quite as relentlessly secular as Kennedy's Houston address. But compared with the period just ending, the new, peri- the, uh, new era will be more secular, more pluralistic, and more focused on issues outside the cultural uh, realm. I also believe that the era of the religious right is over. Um, Even absent the rise of urgent new problems, Americans had already reached a point of exhaustion with a religious style of politics that was dogmatic and partisan and ideological. That style reflected a spirit that was far too certain of itself, far too insistent on the moral depravity of its adversaries. And it had the perverse effect of narrowing the range of issues on which religious traditions would speak out and therefore thinned out our moral discourse. Um, Precisely because I do believe in a strong public role for faith, I would insist that it is a great sellout of our traditions to assert that religion has much to say about abortion and same-sex marriage, but little to teach us about war and peace, social justice, and the environment. Think of that moral values question again. If you had a concern about education but didn't check moral values, you weren't said to be concerned about moral issues. If you cared about the war or if you cared about um, economic justice but didn't check that moral values box, then you weren't really voting on moral concerns. I think that's a misreading of the word moral. Um, With the United States uh, turning our attention again to very large post-9-11 and post-Great Recession issues, uh, we will certainly continue to be asking God's blessing and God's help. But the questions that will most engage us will be about survival and prosperity, not religion uh, and culture. Um, But there is something else. I think it has always uh, been a mistake to view America's cultural argument as involving some a totally polarized uh, set of positions, a fight between uh, permissive cultural liberals or radicals on the one side and cultural traditionalists or reactionaries on the other side. Americans are, in fact, I think, culturally moderate, uh, cultural moderates of one sort or another. Uh, The largest number of us probably fall into a group my friend, the philosopher William Galston, called tolerant traditionalists. Um, Many Americans long for freedom, but we understand freedom's limits. Many long for orthodoxy, yet they almost always want their orthodoxy to be flexible about something that matters to them. Uh, Thus did a rabbi teach my friend David Brooks the wonderfully useful term flexodoxy. Um, The uh, bourgeois bohemians that Brooks has introduced us to in his writings uh, were resolutely flexodox, but I think all of us in each in our different ways are uh, uh, flexodox as well. Um, now, you can see this also, this, this overemphasis on polarization by thinking about how real people react to some of these issues. Um, I have found, I bet you have too, that opponents of abortion often cannot find it in themselves to condemn a woman they know who has had an abortion for a reason that they understand. Um, Many supporters of abortion rights find the issue morally troubling, and many of them would never choose to have an abortion themselves. 
Liberals definitely and desperately do not want to be judged as blue-nosed or judgmental, yet they, like their conservative friends, are uneasy with a consumerist, individualistic culture that often violates their sense of community decency uh, and mutual obligation. A conservative friend once told me that the definition of a social conservative is a liberal with a daughter in high school. Um, And as from personal experience, I can say that he is right. Um, Conservatives uh, on the other side who dread economic regulation and defend capitalism at every turn often find the cultural fruits of capitalism bitter and distasteful. Liberals and conservatives may battle over gay marriage or abortion and yet agree wholeheartedly on what television programs their children shouldn't watch, what websites they shouldn't visit, and what video games they shouldn't uh, play. Uh, And all the conservatives I know who have daughters are, in the end, rather ardent feminists in their attitude toward equality and female uh, achievement. And liberals and conservatives might well disagree over exactly what the First Amendment means, what role religion should play in public life and public policy debates, and how our president should talk about God, and yet still join in admiring the charitable work of our religious institutions and the compassionate instincts of many of their fellow citizens. I think it's a reaction to the culture wars of the 60s that helped uh, create uh, the religious divides that came after, and I think it is a reaction to a sharp and false polarization that may lead us to a rendezvous uh, with moderation uh, and a healing of the religious breach. Uh, Or let's consider a game, uh, uh, um, let's consider that famous moral values question again, because it was revisited um, recently. Um, In that famous moral values survey, uh, 22% of Americans checked moral values. They went 80% for George uh, Bush. And it gave conservative commentators a great opportunity to scold the dreaded liberal media for missing the central dynamic of the election. Um, The now-defunct New York Sun, a conservative paper, ran the headline, Elites Out of Touch with America's Heart and Soul. Uh, Matt Spaulding of the Heritage Foundation, who actually is normally a very careful scholar on religious questions, uh, couldn't resist the enthusiasm of the moment. The election, he said, showed that cultural liberalism is increasingly unattractive to a significant and growing segment of the American electorate. And if this trend continues and continues to solidify, the Democrats will never again be a majority party in the United States. Now, put aside that pollsters of various ideological stripes frequently decided that that moral values exit uh, poll uh, was flawed. Um, In 2004, so many on all sides knew that cultural and moral values were the wave of the future. But as we've seen, a funny thing happened on the road to the revival tent. There was that little economic problem uh, that we've had, and suddenly moral conflict just isn't what it used to be. Um, The Pew Research Center uh, did a survey which I still think has never gotten enough uh, attention. And back in May of 2009... Pew offered its respondents the exact same list of issues that voters were offered back in 2004, including the moral values question, and asked which one of them would matter most if they had had to vote for president at that moment. 
Um, the proportion responding with moral values fell by more than half, from 22% in that exit poll to a mere 10%. Uh, I don't think we became a less moral nation because that, of that polling finding. It won't surprise you at all that concern over the economy and jobs uh, more than doubled from 20% in 2004 to 50% uh, in the new survey. Uh, and the other issues that gained substantial ground were health care and education. Uh, it's interesting that the drop in concern over moral values was particularly sharp among older working-class voters who had been trending uh, Republican uh, for years. Andy Kohut, the president of the Pew Research Center, uh, suggested that this uh, showed that, it, that uh, the moral issues were less pressing, especially um, to populist-leaning uh, populist uh, working-class voters, uh, and they had uh, a lot of economic problems of their own to worry about. And I think... That uh, shift helped explain uh, the outcome of the uh, 2008 uh, election. Um, and I think this, this move toward less polarization has continued, and I say that uh, even in the midst of this very polarized time, and I will get to our friends in the Tea Party uh, in a moment. Um, yes, we have continued to fight over gay marriage, and yes, we've continued... Uh, to have arguments over abortion. They were indeed a feature of the uh, recent health care debate. But I think what's more uh, striking is the extent to which other issues uh, trumped culture. Uh, and I think this is just not a change that's happened on the left side of politics or in the center, uh, but also on the right. Uh, because right now the loudest and most activist sections of the conservative cause are not its religious voices, but the mostly secular anti-government uh, Tea Party. Uh, I think it's very important to see the Tea Party as very distinct uh, from the religious uh, right. Uh, one of the leaders, or at least self-proclaimed leaders of the Tea Party, former House uh, uh, leader, uh, Majority Leader Dick Armey, um, is a prime mover in this movement, and he's never been a friend of the religious right. Army once said that James Dobson of Focus on the Family and his allies were a gang of thugs and real, real nasty bullies. This is not an ally of the religious right. Army and the Tea Party speak a libertarian language that contrasts sharply with the message of Christian conservatives. Dick Army again to the New York Times, when Republicans are fighting against the power of the state, we win. When we are trying to advance it, uh, we lose. Um, at the same time, President Obama has continued uh, to uh, be unabashed in offering his views on religious questions and speaking sympathetically of religion. Uh, two of the most important speeches of his first year were his address at the Notre Dame graduation in May and his acceptance speech uh, for the, uh, Peace, the Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo. And they were suffused with the language of faith. At Notre Dame, uh, the president lavishly praised the Catholic social justice tradition. In Oslo, he spoke as a Christian realist, clearly conversant with the ideas of Reinhold Niebuhr, the great 20th century theologians. On President Bush's faith-based initiative, Obama has made reforms but largely avoided or postponed dealing with the most controversial questions surrounding it, um, and he has actually built on uh, President Bush's work in this area. 
And even the cultural and religious conflicts that have persisted are being debated at a lower volume. Going into the healthcare skirmishes, both supporters and opponents of abortion rights pledged that they would not try to upset current arrangements that bar federal funding for abortion. Although, as we know, they feuded bitterly over what exactly this meant in practice, their opening positions reflected a pulling back from the brink. And the uh, Senate compromise on abortion negotiated by Senators Ben Nelson, Bob Casey, and Barbara Boxer did not satisfy uh, either camp fully uh, in the abortion struggle. Uh, One House member I spoke to at the time said, imagine we Democrats managed to make both sides on the abortion issue unhappy. Um, Nevertheless, those who expected the abortion controversy to sink health care were proven wrong. And while gay marriage continues to royal politics at the state and local levels, this argument has become part of the routine of American politics. Republican politicians have shown a limited appetite for nationalizing the issue, something they did eagerly before the 2004 election. And judging by the closeness of some of the referendum votes, uh, not only here in California, uh, but also uh, last year in Maine, where the measure lost very narrowly, Support for gay marriage uh, has grown, uh, even though its backers in much of the country are still short of a majority. And in the meantime, religious progressives mobilized to a degree not seen since the civil rights years. They weighed in regularly during the health care debate, providing energy for the compromises on abortion that would otherwise have won little organized uh, support. Um, it was inevitable that the cultural and religious issues that would at least partially would at least partially recede during a sharp economic downturn. Uh, again, it's exactly what happened uh, in the Great Depression. Um, and uh, I just want to share a wonderful anecdote that the uh, historian William E. Luchtenberg uh, offered um, that suggests what happened then, and I think what's happening now. He spoke of a Missouri Democrat. Uh, who wrote the Democratic Party leader, Jim Farley, one of Franklin Roosevelt's top lieutenants, uh, that it was, and I quote, ridiculous for a jobless wet Democrat to wrangle with a jobless dry Democrat over liquor when neither could afford the price of a drink. Um, I think we are at that moment now on cultural issues. Now, the paradox for Obama is is that if the economy continues to come back, as it appears to be doing, his overall standing will improve, but the risk of renewed conflict over religion and values will also rise. I think it's a trade the president would happily take, uh, even if he would face a much tougher test of his credentials as a cultural uh, peacemaker. But for all the reasons I have described, I believe that the times are on the side of those who seek peace in the culture wars, an end to the religious wars in our country, and perhaps even the beginning of a time in which we listen more than we yell. Now, speaking of yelling, I can't resist uh, before closing a chance to say a word uh, to our friends uh, in the uh, Tea Party movement. I must say that some of the angriest Tea Parties arouse in me a certain nostalgia for the uh, religious right. Um, but, uh, um, but I do think they believe what they believe uh, and that they deserve an honest and uh, forceful 
uh, answer. Um, I think the philosopher Michael Walls, writing before anybody was talking about the Tea Parties, uh, did offer them a pretty good answer. He said, the contemporary right-wing demand that government get off our back is entirely legitimate whenever government agents interfere uh, with efforts at self-help. Uh, I think all of us, no matter what our politics, do agree with our Tea Party friends uh, that uh, our Constitution's guarantee of individual liberty is one of the great treasures of our country. But Walzer went on to say that the demand isn't legitimate when it represents, as it most often does, an effort to evade the responsibilities of the collective. We have gotten things wrong, Walzer went on, and have made our citizens more unequal than they have to be. We have not sustained the infrastructure that our social life requires. We have not made a sufficient commitment to communal provision. We have not provided a wide enough range of opportunities. Um, I think what I would say to my friends uh, in the Tea Party is that no government is not the response to economic failure. Less government is not the response to too little financial regulation. Denigrating government uh, does not lead to its reform uh, and usually leads instead to complacency or indifference. And pretending uh, to be against government uh, does not square with calls to protect Medicare. Uh, I think in a democracy, we have to remember that government is never them no matter how upset we might be with those in power at any given time, uh, in a democracy, government is always the realm of us. Uh, and it's more us uh, than we usually realize. Uh, Senator Fritz Hollings, when he ran for president back uh, in 1984, uh, told a wonderful story that I think uh, illustrated this very well. Uh, he spoke of a man he had run into uh, who had fought for our country in World War II. Uh, and then after the war, he got to go to college on the GI Bill. Uh, and he got to start a business which became very successful with a small business administration loan. Um, he bought his house with a, an FHA uh, loan. Um, his children went to college on the National Defense uh, Education Act uh, and his parents were happily retired on Social Security and Medicare. And Fritz Hollings reported that this man came to him and said, I am voting for Ronald Reagan to get the government off my back. Um, let us not pretend uh, that we uh, want our country to go back to being exactly what it was like in 1776 or 1789. Let us instead be true to the spirit and the cause of our founders of 1776 and 1787 um, by moving our country not backward but forward. Let us remember that our founders too were called radicals when they declared that all men are created equal, uh, and when they gave the world a new form of government that was resolutely forward-looking in its commitment both to liberty uh, and to enhancing what they called the general uh, welfare. And yes, let us also remember that religion always has been and always will be an important part of American public life. The separation of church and state 
has never meant that Americans would not be informed by, inspired by, or moved by their religious convictions. Faith and reason should be allies, not enemies. Religious Americans have an obligation to acknowledge that ours is a pluralistic society and that the arguments they offer during election campaigns and in the midst of public debates and struggles must be accessible to those who do not share their faith or their religious principles. But non-religious Americans need to acknowledge in turn that their religious brothers and sisters cannot help but have their political convictions informed by their faith traditions. I once actually had a chance to debate Ralph Reed of the Christian Coalition, uh, and I said, I'll always uh, defend your right to base your political views on your religious beliefs. My religious beliefs have greatly informed my views, but I wish you would explain to me where Jesus endorsed a cut in the capital gains tax. I have never been able to find it uh, in my New Testament. Um, Religion can lead us to searching self-criticism or to pompous self-satisfaction. There have been moments in our history when it has inspired us to courage and commitment and other moments when it has been used as a tool of prejudice and exclusion. For all our difficulties as a nation, however, I believe that just as the arc of history bends toward justice, so has the engagement of faith in our public life been primarily a force calling us to higher standards, to greater justice, and to a commitment to community uh, and to fellowship. I believe we are now struggling toward a period in which believers and non-believers, traditionalists and moderates, uh, come to understand that all of us must help each other on the road to truth. I think that we are in a period of reengaging with faith's prophetic role. Uh, Many of us hope for a time when believers and unbelievers come together as they did in the civil rights years on behalf of great projects of civic renewal and civic reform. Uh, In the long run, faith should unite us, not divide us. It should lead us not to complacency, but to action, not to arrogance, but to an acceptance of our public responsibilities, not to a certainty that God is on our side, but to a humble quest to act in a godly way in an imperfect world whose betterment requires us to act in hope. Faith and hope should promote in us not self-satisfaction, but a glorious dissatisfaction with the world as it is so we can envision the world as it might be. Self-satisfaction is not the calling of faith. Martin Luther King drew upon the prophet Amos uh, in the speech offering his own dream. We are not satisfied, King said, and we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. That is the standard of faith. That is the obligation of those who declare their allegiance to a just and loving God. It is also the obligation of all of us, again, believers and unbelievers and doubters together, all of us who love our democracy who cherish its capacity for self-correction, who seek a more just and merciful world. It is the obligation of all who see hope not as an empty word, not just as a lovely notion to use in an election campaign, but as a demanding virtue. It's a demanding virtue that calls upon us never to give up, 
never to surrender to hatred, never to abandon our mission to build a beloved community. Hope is the virtue on which faith and love depend, and hope is the virtue that democracy must nurture in all of our citizens and in every generation. Thank you very much. I was wondering if you could speculate, based on your knowledge of Washington, what it will take to reduce the rancor and improve the sense of civility, because the perception that we get here, with the exception of of Lois and some other people, is that uh, both parties are so nasty and so manipulative that uh, I'm sure you've noticed that the approval rating for Congress as a whole is near its all-time low. And I don't think that whether you're religious or secular or left or right or Republican or Democrat, anyone is pleased with that current situation. So what is it going to take to try to move beyond that? Um, I am actually grateful to uh, lawyers and members of Congress because they are among the only people who help keep journalists out of the cellar of the ratings that people offer. Um, and my wife is a lawyer, and I thank her all the time uh, for that. Um, you know, what will it take to get us out of this war, famine, pestilence, earthquakes, volcanoes? Actually, we're having earthquakes uh, and uh, volcanoes. I think, first of all, we are in a really, really difficult economy. We have just gone through a, uh, a divisive presidency to, to uh, one war that started popular and is less popular, another war that was divisive from almost from the start. Um, and so um, it, it shouldn't shock us that it, we are a hard country to govern now and that these uh, uh, divisions uh, are there. Um, secondly, I do think that um, um, conservatives had a hard time with uh, losing uh, this last election, partly because I think a lot of conservatives had a hard time with the end of the Bush uh, administration. And there's something sort of curious about this conservative anger that it is obviously directed at Barack Obama. Uh, but I also think some of it comes from um, a, um, a sense that things went wrong on their own uh, watch. Um, and so that makes it, uh, that makes it uh, difficult. Um, I, I think... Um, you always have to be careful when you talk about this. Um, uh, I, I think there is a uh, racial element to some of this uh, anger. I say you have to be careful because I am not saying most opposition to Obama uh, is rooted in race or that this is, you know, everything else is a cover for race. On the other hand, there really is evidence in the polling that at least, um, you know, this was a really an important major step our country uh, took when we elected our first African-American president. It shouldn't be shocking to us, disappointing perhaps, that there is some uh, resistance to that. Um, and then you also have uh, two other factors. One, there are a lot of people in America who have been hurting uh, for a long uh, time. Um, I think of uh, a belt of areas. I grew up in an old uh, factory town uh, in New England uh, called Fall River. I love my Hometown, we have always seemed to pick the wrong industry, and industry keeps, you know, they go abroad, and then the next industry goes abroad. Think about that whole belt of wonderful old industrial towns through Pennsylvania, uh, or through parts of northern Ohio, or think of 
uh, what is happening to the state of Michigan and the unemployment rate uh, that they have. Um, so this is a really hard time. So again, it shouldn't shock us that we're angry. But lastly, um, usually uh, one political scientist said that uh, often in a two-party system there's a sun party and a moon party, uh, that one party dominates and the other is sort of available as an opposition but is usually um, uh, sort of on the outs for a long time. The Republicans were the sun party for a long period after uh, the Civil War. Uh, Democrats were the Sun Party for a long period after FDR's election. Um, we've gone through a very long period in which these two parties are relatively evenly uh, matched or very closely uh, matched, where there was a really good chance that one, of the, one or both of the houses of Congress would flip. Uh, and we've gone through a long period of ideological sorting out. It used to be the case um, that bipartisanship was a product of the fact that the Democratic Party included a whole lot of conservative Southerners who'd regularly vote with the Republicans, and the Republican Party included a whole lot of progressives uh, from the Northeast and Midwest, uh, sometimes from the West Coast. Senator Kekul from this state a long time ago uh, is a good example, who would vote a lot with the Democrats. Now, we have a more rational system. They were both sorted out more ideologically, but that also leads to greater party uh, polarization. Um, so I actually think my, that's a long introduction to a short answer. I think that somebody's going to have to win this fight. I think at some point somebody's going to become uh, the Sun Party and somebody's going to become the Moon Party for a while. Um, and uh, we will sort of have a sort of, you know, a diminishing sense of this uh, uh, polarization, um, and prosperity will do an awful lot uh, for it. I mean, think of the, uh, you know, think of the popularity Bill Clinton had even after impeachment. Uh, you know, there was that terrible divisive fight, and then um, as the economy was soaring, he was quite popular. Think of the popularity Ronald Reagan had, liberals, a lot of liberals really didn't like Ronald Reagan, and yet his standing when he left office uh, was also uh, rather high. So a little bit more of a settlement in our political fight and a little bit more prosperity could do wonders uh, for us and suddenly make us all much more civil. My understanding of the definition of prostitution is somebody who sells himself. Does that not clearly... Uh, define our Congress, and until that is corrected, that they are not for sale, where the lobbyists are driven out of Washington, that this will not change. Um, you know, when you're, thank you for your question. You know, when a speaker begins a question like that, the, he always wonders whether that question is going to be directed at him. So I'm actually, gr again, grateful to the United States Congress. Uh, <laughs> um, the I'm a, I think that there is a huge problem with the way money works in politics. I mean, I think you'd be surprised that um, uh, I'm always, you know, I, I am, you'd be surprised at um, how many of these folks on an awful lot of votes actually um, vote some combination of their consciences in their districts. Uh, and often they overlap because people of a certain kind of district tend to elect to people with a, people with a certain kind of uh, conscience. But having said that, um, 
Uh, I think the money system is uh, is a mess, and it's probably only going to get worse with this Citizens United uh, decision by the U.S. Supreme Court um, made earlier this year, which declared essentially that corporations were just like people uh, and uh, they uh, can spend unlimited sums of money to influence uh, the outcome of elections. Now, think of what that means uh, uh, if you cast a vote that hurts some company or takes a contract away from some company or institutes a regulation that hurts some company, that company can just spend a ton of money uh, saying how awful uh, you are uh, when you're running uh, for re-election. Um, you know, in a way, it cuts out the middleman. The candidate won't be raising the money. The corporation will just uh, go out and do it. There was this wonderful cartoon critical of the Supreme Court for making this decision, as I very much was, that uh, showed the justices uh, who voted for it uh, wearing corporate logos on their uh, uh, robes. Um, you know, congressmen will become like uh, baseball and football stadiums uh, if this goes on. So if you ask me what I do about it, um, what I would do, uh, first of all, I would put limits on this, try to put limits on this Citizens United uh, decision. I, I love the idea of uh, um, of one of the ideas that's been floated, which is that if a company uh, runs an ad against a candidate, um, the CEO will have to uh, come on just like the candidates do. You know, I'm Joe Smith, president of Consolidated Megacorp, and I approve this message. Um, um, also, they're trying to sort of create uh, limits on the ability of companies to get federal contracts to run these kind of advertisements. There are a lot of ways you might re limit this. But what you really need to do is democratize fundraising so that candidates depend a lot more on small money. Obama showed, got us a part of the way there. Um, when you saw the amount of money that Obama could raise uh, from contributors of five, ten, twenty-five, a hundred dollars. Um, there are a lot. There is a lot of potential political activism out there. Uh, what if you created a system where small country, all contributions under two hundred dollars would be matched five to one? It's a sort of form of public financing, but it's a form of public financing designed to uh, to privilege small donations. I think you could create um, a situation in which. Uh, Candidates could develop a real interest in staying away from the big kind of money uh, that you're uh, talking about um, and try to raise uh, try to raise smaller uh, money. Um, I, you know, there are other ways. There have been other experiments that have worked in some states. Clean money, uh, the the clean money initiatives, where um, a candidate can, uh, you know, a after they raise a certain modest amount of money, can have their whole campaign publicly. Uh, financed and they get listed on the ballot as a clean money uh, candidate. Um, I'd like to see states uh, work with that. But I think the easiest way to get there would be to create these strong incentives uh, for uh, uh, small, uh, for, for lots of small donors uh, to come out because they've shown that there are circumstances under which they will uh, come out. Just wondered if you'd comment on uh what problems you see the Obama administration had in the first couple of years, particularly with the health care campaign? And so your question is... Um, what, what did Obama do or didn't do that could have made a big difference in this kind of... The, this big problem we seem to have now? 
No, and you mentioned the health care fight. Um, I'm, I'm shocked that you didn't think the process through which we pass a health care bill was efficient, orderly, attractive. Uh, it, it really was a mess. I mean, at one point I, I uh, wrote, or I, I can't remember whether I wrote it or said it, that, uh, um, you know, the health care bill is like a dead fish that's been sitting around the kitchen for a few days. I mean, it's just not something that part of the problem was how long it took to pass. And I think some of the lack of popularity of the bill was related to the uh, length of time it took to pass it, the sort of a perception of an ugly process or maybe the reality of a, an ugly uh, process. Um, you know, I, I think that all, you know, any kind of legislation uh, this complicated um, is going to look ugly in the making. It's that old Washington line, the two things you don't want to watch are sausage making and the making of legislation. Um, but this one probably got worse, was worse than it had to be. Um, um, you, my, there are a lot of theories on this. My, I'll tell you what my own are. Um, I think that um, the, it was fairly clear much earlier than the White House was willing to act on it that there weren't going to be Republican uh, votes there. Uh, and um, I think that uh, Senator Baucus um, spent way too much time trying to win the votes of uh, the vote of Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, his friend. And I think that that whole process in the Senate Finance Committee, uh, which, you know, they should have had a bill out by June or July, and instead, um, they waited till September, and you had that whole month of August where opposition uh, grew, um, and you know the, the town meetings, uh, where you know you can argue as I would that the um, town meetings you saw on television weren't representative of all the town meetings that were going on out there. The, the um, a senator, uh, Congressman David Price of North Carolina, told me that. Uh, he had a really good town meeting, about 1,000 people, and there was strong opposition and strong support, but it was very civil. And somebody representing it, somebody was working for one of the networks, went up to him before and said, just want you to know that if your meeting doesn't blow up, it's not going to get on television. Um, but having said that, there clearly was time for opposition to grow. So I think that the original sin for me was, um, you know, expecting Republican support was that would not materialize and failing to plan accordingly to try to get this process moving because I think it would have been far better and I think the bill would have ended up much more popular uh, if uh, it had passed in, say, November than if it had gone all the way uh, past, you know, up to the Massachusetts primary. I think Scott Brown might have lost the race if uh, uh, they'd actually passed health care uh, by then. Um, and, you know, I think Senator Obama, President Obama, um, is, um, you know, he's got kind of dueling political imperatives. When you think about why he won, um, he won on the one hand because there was a very mobilized Democratic Party, Democratic Party base, and newly mobilized uh, young people, uh, African Americans who had not been, African American turnout is always, uh, you know, is always quite good, but this was an exceptional African-American turnout. Um, you know, he, so he had kind of his core group, but he also won because he captured the middle. He won independents, you know, moderates by about three to two. And I think he uh, spent a, a, a lot more time on the task of trying to win over independents and keep those independents with a show of 
bipartisanship than he did with mobilizing uh, his base. The paradox now is he's lost some independence and has a less uh, mobilized base. And I think what you began to see um, in the last two weeks of the healthcare fight uh, is, I think, a better approach on his part, which is to say, look, you know, we're going to need Republican votes in the new Senate to get anything through, um, but I'm going to do whatever it takes to get you know, a bill acceptable to me passed. He's intervening earlier in the uh, financial regulatory uh, bill. He's taken the fight to the other side. He's looked happier uh, in it. Um, and I just think that, uh, there, that you know, he is extremely good at explaining things um, and those long speeches. All, all his health care speeches bumped uh, the numbers up. Um, but you didn't see the campaigning Obama very much uh, in this period. Uh, and I think partly because it's an election year and partly because it worked better, uh, you know, they saw that it worked better. You're going to see uh, more of that uh, in, in the coming in the coming period. Last quick point is, um, you know, they were, they were stuck in policy terms right at the beginning on how tough should you be on Wall Street. They were petrified the whole economy was going to go off the cliff and that if they had taken on their fight, with, taken on a fight with Wall Street then or had followed uh, Paul Krugman's suggestion of, say, nationalizing the bank, they were, banks, they really believed that was going to slow uh, the recovery, not speed it up. But having not been aggressive in the period when they had the most leverage against the banks, they're now in a weaker position. Um, and they ended up with the worst of all worlds. Can you think of something worse to be in American politics than to be a Wall Street liberal? Um, you know, that, that's, you, know you, lose at both, uh, you lose at both ends. And I think there was a, they, they developed a sense that they, they developed a public sense that they were kind of too close to Wall Street, yet they were still a liberal uh, administration. I think, again, financial reform with Wall because Wall Street opposes it, you know, with this new uh, Goldman Sachs problem. I think all this gives them, um, uh, you know, a second life and a chance to rejoin a bunch of the fights that they go to join uh, earlier. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.